Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. After ancient times and late antiquity, we now enter the Dark Ages of Europe, a period where historians are confident on the broad outline of events, but less so on many details, due to lack of reliable surviving sources. For instance, the precise date and location of many battles is not known for sure, something we found earlier in the Battle of the Catalonian Fields, which therefore is known also as the Battle of Chalon the suspected location of the battle by some. Today's battle may have happened in the year AD 732 or AD 733, depending on which source you rely on, and happened somewhere between the French cities of Poitiers and Tours. Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles, the Battle of Tours, also known as the Battle of Poitiers. In the last podcast, we looked at the Battle of Yamuk, AD 636, an epic six-day struggle between, on one side, the Muslims from Arabia, and on the other side, the Byzantine, or Eastern, Roman Empire. The Arabs achieved a decisive victory, striking a devastating blow to the Byzantines. They then subsequently took control of the whole Fertile Crescent, when they conquered Persia in 644 and over time supplanted the native Zoroastrian religion with Islam. All this left the Byzantine Empire dangerously exposed and vulnerable. Indeed, given the number of options given by Yamuk, the Muslim generals found it difficult to agree on what they were to do next. In the end, they decided to first complete the subjugation of Palestine, including the taking of two largest unconquered cities in the region, Jerusalem and Caesarea. Jerusalem was besieged and surrendered in April 637, and would stay in Muslim hands for another 462 years and the First Crusade. The coastal city of Caesarea was able to hold out for over three years, but eventually fell when a party of Jews, disgruntled by perceived religious intolerance by the Byzantines, led a contingent of Muslim soldiers into the city via the sewers. By the 640s, the Muslims had also taken control of Syria, having met only local resistance. The Byzantine emperor, Heraclius, decided to consolidate his forces in and around the Taurus Mountains, the border between Syria and Anatolia, hence virtually giving up on the lands to the south. Local Christian garrisons did resist, but could not hold out for long on their own. The Arabs' next target was Byzantine Egypt, which they invaded at the beginning of 640 AD. They met stiff resistance from imperial troops, especially at the siege of Alexandria in 641. But as in Syria, the local populace were not strongly disposed to either side, viewing both Greeks and Arabs as interlopers. 
Despite the common bond of their Christian faith with Constantinople, they accepted the rule of the Arabs in return for peace. This was vital. Without the help and experience of the natives, the conquerors would not have been able to administer Egypt. To compound problems in Constantinople, the Emperor Heraclius died in 641, leading to a succession crisis that weakened the empire's response. Even so, it is difficult to explain why the Romans gave up on the rich province of Egypt without more of a fight. For over 600 years, the province had been the breadbasket of the Roman Empire, while its large population had provided vast amounts of tax revenue. The Arabs then sought to gain territory further west, into the region they called the Maghreb, literally the west. This territory consisted of present-day Libya, Tunisia, Algeria and Morocco, and was collectively known as the Byzantine province of Africa. The Byzantines controlled several significant trading ports on the Mediterranean coast of North Africa, though they had never gained effective control over the Berber people of the North African interior. In 642, the year after the fall of Alexandria, Arab horsemen invaded eastern Libya. With Byzantine control there restricted to just a few poorly defended coastal strongholds, the invaders encountered little resistance. However, these attacks started off as just raiding expeditions. The Arabs' main goal at this point was the consolidation of authority in Egypt, the richest area of northern Africa. Although they succeeded in temporarily driving the Byzantines out of Tripoli, in western Libya in 645, they did not follow that conquest with the establishment of a permanent Arab presence in the city. No further raids were conducted for nearly 20 years during a period of political instability in the Arab world, which led to the founding of the Umayyad dynasty, which moved the centre of Muslim power to Damascus. But in the 660s, the Arabs again headed west, taking Tripoli again in 666, and this time the Muslims ensured their control over this land. By 670, the Arabs had taken most of Tunisia, and in 695, the ancient city of Carthage. After securing the coast, they turned their attention to gaining the loyalty of the inland Berber tribes. Their success in assimilating these people was a major reason for the lasting success of Arab conquest in North Africa. Military conquest of land without winning hearts and minds generally ends in imperial failure. The Christian population were likewise won over with a policy of tolerance. They were subjected to a tax called the jizya, which was taken as material proof of the acceptance of subjection to the Muslim state and its laws. But actually this was not too dissimilar to the taxes required by the previous regime of Byzantium. In return, Christians were permitted to practice their faith and were entitled to the Muslim state's protection from outside aggression, whilst being exempt from both military service and taxes required of Muslim citizens. On the other hand, non-Muslims were second-class citizens and would, as a rule, have to convert to Islam to become part of the ruling elite. Success spread success, and the conquests took on the momentum of their own, as the increasingly professional armies of the Caliphate acquired further land and booty. Arab armies progressed further east in 710. They took the city of Tangier on the African side of the Straits of Gibraltar, under the command of a Berber chief, and the next year they invaded Spain. 
Before the Muslim invasion, the Iberian Peninsula, which included present-day Spain and Portugal, had been a Christian territory ruled by the Visigoths. There is debate among historians whether the Visigothic kingdom was declining and ripe for the taking, or was reasonably strong at the time of the Arab invasion. Either way, the Muslims completed their conquest of most of the Iberian Peninsula very swiftly by defeating the Visigoths at the Battle of Guadalete in 711, or 712, which is known by several other names due to the lack of concrete information we have on the event. The outcome, though, is undisputed. The Visigothic king died in a decisive battle, after which Muslim forces conquered virtually the entire Iberian Peninsula over the next three years. They set up their Spanish capital at Cordova in 717 and named their new territory Al-Andalus, a name retained still in the name of Spain's southern region, Andalusia. Much of the Muslim settlement in the region was accomplished by Berber converts from North Africa who crossed the Straits of Gibraltar into Spain to pasture their animals. So confident were the invaders after conquering almost all of Spain that they continued to push northeast into present-day France. Their opponents in France were a people called the Franks, who we met in the earlier podcast on the Battle of the Catalonian Fields, when they were one of the tribes allied with the Roman army against the Huns. The Franks entered history for the first time in 3rd century Roman accounts. They are described as a group of Germanic tribes occupying the lower and middle Rhine valleys. As Rome's northern border became more porous, Frankish incursions over the Rhine became more frequent. Some of the Frankish tribes, notably a group called the Salians, or quote, maritime people, were settled by the Romans in order to try and control them. They formed a kingdom on Roman-held soil and in 457 or 458 established their capital and power base around Tournai, a town along the modern frontier between France and Belgium. Their leader went by the name of Childeric. He ruled until 481, therefore during and beyond the time the Western Roman Empire ended. The Franks were one of a number of different peoples migrating into the dissolving Western Roman Empire. By all accounts, there was much intermarrying between the immigrants and natives, as well as within different immigrant groups. Many of the groups and individuals who rose to prominence at this time were mixed in their ethnic origins and created new cultural and political entities, rather than continuing old ones. Likewise, sections of one migrating tribe would often become detached from the rest of the peoples and end up in completely different parts of Europe. One fragment of Roman imperial rule survived the dismissal of the last Roman Empire. The domain of Soissons in northern France, located between the Somme and Loire rivers, retained its Roman governor called Syragrius. The story of this last Roman foothold in the West helps us understand how the empire disappeared piecemeal, fizzling out rather than going in one big bang. All over Gaul, the social structure of the old Roman lands largely continued as before, or at least evolved, rather than suddenly transforming. The educated Roman nobility remained influential in Spain, southern Gaul and central Italy. Over time, many would intermarry with the ruling Germanic nobles, blending into a new ruling class. 
Syagrius was on good terms with Childeric, and the two fought together against the Visigoths to their south. Childeric's son and successor, Clovis I, however, reversed his father's policy and made continual war against Syagrius. After years of fighting, he took over all his territory, defeating him finally in the Battle of Soissons in 486. The main source for the rule of Clovis is the Bishop Gregory of Tours, writing about a century later. Although it is an invaluable source for information on this period, the chronology of events is unreliable. What's more, Gregory's Clovis reads like an almost too perfect model figure of a Catholic warrior king, so it's open to debate which facts were massaged to make the story fit the ideal picture. The reign of Clovis is important for three reasons. Firstly, he unified the separate Frankish tribes by a mixture of military force and diplomacy. Secondly, he conquered much of Gaul, as well as the domain of Soissons, other significant centres of power in Gaul were the Burgundians in the southeast, Visigoths in central Gaul, and Provence in the south. Clovis was less successful fighting the Burgundians, but crushed the Visigoths at the Battle of Rouet in 507, forcing them out of Gaul and into Spain, where they established the kingdom mentioned just earlier that was finally overthrown by the Arabs. The third reason for Clovis's significance in European history is that he converted to Catholic Christianity, in so doing forming an alliance with the Pope in Rome. Clovis founded the so-called Merovingian dynasty, which lasted nearly two centuries. He is also often considered the first king of France. A Latinized version of his name, Louis, became the most popular name for French rulers. The success of the Franks was largely due to their taking over, with its Roman structure largely intact, the wealthy and geographically central provinces of Roman Gaul. It was Clovis who destroyed the independence of most or all of the other local tribes, and it was he who led his people into a series of successful military campaigns that made the Franks into one of the most powerful of the Germanic peoples. Gallo-Romans and other subjects of the Frankish kings adopted Frankish customs, such as Frankish personal names, while many Franks adopted the Latin language and Roman ways. This blurred the old ethnic differences so much that they started to become meaningless. Meanwhile, the continued political dominance of the kings of the Franks began to make their subjects, of whatever origin, think of themselves as Franks. People in southern Gaul, however, because they were increasingly independent of the power of the Frankish kings, used different ethnic words of themselves. Those in Aquitaine, for example, known as Romani by the Franks, called themselves Aquitani. When Clovis died, his kingdom was partitioned among his four sons. This policy would have been in line with Frankish tradition, but was unusual among the great kingdoms of the West. Over time it led to frequent fracturing of the kingdom and prevented centralisation of power. For the first generation after Clovis, sufficient opportunities existed for the kings to coexist reasonably harmoniously. By working together, they extended Frankish control to Burgundy in 534 and Provence in 536. 
After that, though, any territorial expansion had to be achieved either at the expense of neighbouring non-Frankish kingdoms or as the product of civil war. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Over the next one and a half centuries, the frequent division of kingdoms after a king died led to waves of internecine warfare and a general state of disunity within France. The sources available for this period are meagre and amended in the later Carolingian period, so concrete facts are hard to pin down. We do know that by the late 7th century, Frankish territories were divided into the regions of Neustria and Austrasia respectively the western and eastern halves of the kingdom. What appeared to happen in the early 8th century in both was a loss of real authority by the kings, who became little better than puppets in the hands of rival aristocratic factions. One of these factions, led by a family later to be known as the Carolingians, were dominant in Austrasia. They controlled the royal treasury, dispersed patronage, and granted land and privileges in the name of the figurehead king. It was one of their leaders, Pepin II, who was able to reunite all the Frankish realms by conquering Neustria and Burgundy in 687, and became the first to call himself Duke and Prince of the Franks. Shortly before dying, he named his grandson as heir. However, his illegitimate son, Charles, had gained favour among the Austrasians, primarily for his military prowess and ability to keep them well supplied with booty from his conquests. He was imprisoned, but managed to escape, gather an army, and after three years of civil war, became the sole de facto ruler of the Franks. He is known to history as Charles Martel, or Charles the Hammer. Having achieved peace within his realm, Charles fought against a Germanic people called the Saxons who were edging southwestwards into Frankish territory, but the battles were inconclusive. Then, during 725, he led a major expedition east of the Rhine against the Alamans, Thuringians and Bavarians. These peoples were, according to the chronicle A History of Deeds of the Franks, punished and subjugated. Charles did not gain direct authority over them, but did succeed in bringing them within the Frankish sphere of influence. He appointed local governors in frontier regions, and also bishops, who became responsible for local government and defence, as well as ecclesiastical matters. Charles's next target was the Duchy of Aquitaine, in the southwest of France, between the Loire Valley and the Pyrenees. Its leader, Odo, was already having to cope with Muslim incursions into his territory and was heavily involved in the events leading up to the Battle of Tours. 
Aquitaine had a largely Gallo-Roman and emphatically Christian population who enjoyed a degree of civilization superior in many ways to that of the Franks. The Roman towns there had survived and in some cases expanded beyond their late Roman fortifications. Aquitaine was also rich in mineral sources, including silver and gold. The Aquitanian army was based more on late Roman than Germanic principles, including the recruitment of non-Romans into the army, in their case mainly the Gascons of Gascony and the Basques living in the Pyrenees mountains. The border between Aquitaine and the Franks was the Loire Valley, on which was situated Tours, an important strategic city owned by the Franks. As described earlier, the Arabs had seized control of almost all the Iberian Peninsula from the Visigoths and set up their capital at Toledo by 717. In 718, the newly appointed governor-general of Al-Andalus, Al-Sama ibn Malik, led an Arab army into the region known to the Romans as Septimania. The stretch of land along the Mediterranean coast between the Pyrenees Mountains and the Rhone Valley. Fertile and urbanised, with flourishing trade links with southern and western Europe, as well as North Africa and the Middle East, it was a great prize. Al-Sama besieged a number of towns and cities, including Narbonne, Montpellier and Nîmes, but decided he needed to return to Iberia to gather more fighters before attacking the strongly defended Aquitanian capital city of Toulouse. So in 721 he led a massive army into Aquitaine with siege engines, infantry, horsemen and mercenaries. The siege of Toulouse, with its near impregnable walls, lasted until early summer. The defenders' shorter provisions were close to breaking when Duke Odo returned at the head of a large Aquitanian and Frankish force, attacking the Muslim rear and launching a highly successful encircling movement. Caught between the Toulouse defenders and Odo's men, Al-Sama tried to break out, but was trapped with the bulk of his troops in a place that came to be called by Muslim chroniclers the Path of the Martyrs. He made a determined last stand, but was mortally wounded, and the Christian forces decimated his army. The man who then led the Muslims' army's remnants was called Abdul Rahman al-Ghafiqi, who then briefly became governor of al-Andalus. However, he was not acceptable to the governor of North Africa, who had overall responsibility of the province, so was replaced. But Al-Ghafiqi later returned to France to fight at the Battle of Tours. This Arab defeat at Toulouse did not stop their incursions. They were soundly based in the city of Narbonne and easily resupplied by sea. So they struck eastwards in the 720s, penetrating as far as Burgundy in 725 in one raid. In order to secure his borders, Odo secured an alliance with a rebel Berber leader who had taken control of an area in the Pyrenees. This was used as an excuse by Charles Martel to break his peace treaty with Aquitaine. The Frankish leader ransacked Aquitaine twice and seized the town of Bourges. 
Odo engaged the Frankish troops but was defeated. Charles decided he had done enough and went back to his lands. Meanwhile, the Berber rebel lord was under attack from Umayyad forces sent from Spain and led by Al-Gafiki. Odo, caught between a rock and a hard place, was too busy fending off Charles' attack to help his ally, who was defeated and killed. This Muslim victory was important for securing the northern border of Al-Andalus. The following year, in 732, Al-Gafiki led a considerable Muslim army into Aquitaine. His intention was not to conquer France, still less to overrun Christian Europe. It was more of a raid, though a substantial one, in line with an established Arab strategy used in areas ranging from Central Asia to India and Sudan, of sending repeated small-scale attacks in which each army consisted only of what was necessary for its limited aim. There is, however, heated scholarly debate about the extent to which the Muslim powers were contemplating more permanent control north of the Pyrenees at the time. The details about Al-Gafiki's campaign, including the Battle of Tor, are unclear. Our best source describing the events was written a couple of decades after the events. It is called the Mozarabic Chronicle of 754, and was written by an anonymous Christian chronicler living under Arab rule in Spain. Another source is called the Continuation of Fredegar's Chronicle, thought to be written by a Christian participant in the campaign. Odo's primary concern was to defend an attack on the key city of Bordeaux. He had to choose between resisting inside Bordeaux and perhaps being trapped there or fighting in the open outside. Perhaps recalling his victory outside Toulouse 11 years earlier, he decided on the latter, but this time his forces were defeated. The Mozarabic Chronicle only briefly mentions the fight for the city, but claims that Aquitanian casualties were so high that, quote, God alone knows the number of the slain, unquote. The Muslim army now entered Bordeaux sometime in June, burning the churches and perhaps much of the old Roman city, killing many citizens and the city's governor, and gathering substantial loot. Odo escaped and assembled new troops, including stragglers from Bordeaux, while Al-Gafiki pillaged the region and then defeated Odo in battle a second time. It also appears that Odo was defeated again a third time by the river Dordogne, this time decisively. Odo, with no realistic hope of saving his principality from further devastation, led his remaining troops northwards. Reaching Frankish-controlled territory, he warned Charles Martel of this great threat from the south and appealed for assistance in fighting the Arab advance. Charles, now concerned about a large hostile army marching in the direction of Tours, agreed to help Odo, but only in return for him agreeing to submit to Frankish authority. Charles ordered a military summons in order to raise the largest army possible, while Odo gathered together his forces, who had become scattered. The Aquitanians linked up with Charles' troops and fought as the Frankish left flank. The 
the Muslim army, meanwhile, moved northwards, ransacking towns and churches. They passed by the strongly defended city of Poitiers and continued north towards the rich church of Saint-Martin outside Tours. Tours, however, lay in Frankish rather than Aquitanian territory and Al-Ghafiqi would be invading another very powerful kingdom. Historians debate the route the invaders took, but it seems unlikely the main body of the army reached Tours although its scouts may almost have reached the city. All sources do agree, however, that the first main clash took place on and alongside a major Roman road, and that both armies were large, though in the case of the Muslims, these numbers included numerous camp followers. Except numbers are impossible to be certain of. In general, information about the battle is not only limited, but is mostly couched in poetic terms that are difficult to decipher. For seven days, the two armies faced off with minor skirmishes, while the Muslims waited for their full strength to arrive. Al-Ghafiqi could have decided to retreat and forego the sacking of Tor, but he was confident enough of victory to initiate an offensive. The Muslim cavalry charges, with their long lances and swords, had brought them easy victory in previous battles. Charles chose to begin the battle in a defensive phalanx-like formation. According to Arab sources, the Franks formed a large square, with hills and trees to their front to break up the Muslims' cavalry charges. This also made it difficult for the Muslims to judge the size of Charles' army. Charles's decision to wait forced the Umayyads to rush uphill and through woods, negating to a large degree the effect of the cavalry. Though without any heavy cavalry of his own, Charles had disciplined, battle-hardened and well-armoured infantry who stood firm against repeated attacks. The Mozarabic Chronicle of 754 says, quote, and in the shock of the battle, the men of the north seemed like a sea that cannot be moved. Firmly they stood, one close to another, forming, as it were, a bulwark of ice. And with great blows of their swords, they hewed down the Arabs. Drawn up in a band around their chief, the people of the Austrasians carried all before them. Their tireless hands drove their swords down to the breasts of the foe. End quote. Charles, meanwhile, sent scouts to raid the Umayyad base camp, prompting some of the Umayyad troops to break off the battle, to return to the camp and secure the loot they had taken from Bordeaux. To the rest of the Muslim army, this appeared to be a full-scale retreat, and soon it became one. Trying to stop the retreat, Al-Ghafiqi became surrounded and was killed, either by an arrow or by a javelin. According to the continuation of Fridegar's chronicle, quote, Charles boldly drew up his battle line against them, and the warriors rushed in against them. With Christ's help, he overturned their tents and hastened to battle to grind them small in slaughter. This did the victor triumph over his enemies. End quote. The Umayyad troops eventually repulsed the Frankish attack and withdrew altogether to their camp. The Franks then decided to rest for the night, believing the battle would resume at dawn 
the following morning. But as the Mozarabic Chronicle says, quote, Rising from their own camp at dawn, the Europeans saw the tents and canopies of the Arabs all arranged, just as they had appeared the day before. Not knowing that they were empty, and thinking that inside them there were Saracen forces ready for battle, they sent officers to reconnoitre, and discovered that all the Ishmaelite troops had left. They had indeed fled silently by night in tight formation, returning to their own country. End quote. The Muslims had successfully tricked the Christians into believing their army was still in position. Charles withdrew northwards, leaving Odo to lead the pursuit of the retreating enemy forces. They managed to capture some stragglers, but the main Arab army safely reached the Muslim-ruled city of Narbon in Septimania. Several sources, in fact, report that Muslims continued to raid and devastate as they marched south, still operating as a coordinated unit. In subsequent years, Charles continued to drive the Muslim forces from France. The last enemy forces were expelled from north of the Pyrenees when Charles's son, Pippin the Short, forced Narbonne's surrender in 759. Charles's grandson, Charlemagne, later pushed into northeast Spain and established control across the Pyrenees and in part of what today is Catalonia, reconquering Girona in 785 and Barcelona in 801. A secure buffer zone now protected France from Muslim aggression across the Pyrenees. Contemporary chroniclers noted the importance of the Battle of Tours. Then in the 18th century, Edward Gibbon contended that had Charles fallen, the Umayyad Caliphate could have gone on to conquer Europe. In his words, quote, a victorious line of march had been prolonged above a thousand miles from the rock of Gibraltar to the banks of the Loire. The repetition of an equal space would have carried the Saracens to the confines of Poland and the highlands of Scotland. The Rhine is not more impassable than the Nile or Euphrates, and the Arabian fleet might have sailed without a naval combat into the mouth of the Thames. Perhaps the interpretation of the Quran would now be taught in the schools of Oxford, and her pulpits might demonstrate to a circumcised people the sanctity and truth of the revelation of Muhammad. End quote. Then in 851, Sir Edward Creasy listed the Battle of Tours in his book The Fifteen Decisive Battles of the World with a similar theme. Most historians of his time would have agreed with the idea that the battle put an end to the seemingly unstoppable Arab expansion and saved Western Europe. However, Arab and Muslim historians downplayed the importance of the battle and described it as a mere skirmish. They were much more interested in the events in Constantinople a few years previous. There, the Arabs had laid siege to the city from 717 to 718, marking the culmination of 20 years of Arab incursions into Byzantine lands. Truth be told, this event was probably more significant than the Battle of Tours. Constantinople was the largest city in the West at the time and of immense strategic importance. 
If the Arabs had taken the great city, they would probably have used it as a base from which to expand into southeastern Europe, and perhaps beyond. I will talk more about the Byzantine Empire in later podcasts. More recently, it has certainly become unfashionable to give great importance to the Battle of Tor, putting faith in the Arab account that it was an isolated raid and not part of an invasion, and suggesting Arab extension was meeting its natural end anyway. In my view, this is an overreaction against the hyperbole of Gibbon and Creasy. The Arabs were riding high on confidence and expected to take over France as easily as they had Spain, but badly miscalculated the strength of the Franks. The Arab chronicles show the Umayyad leaders had no idea the Franks were a strong power until the Battle of Tor. The notion that Arab expansion reached some kind of natural frontier around the Pyrenees is based on superimposing today's mental map of Europe on the situation in 732. I believe the Battle of Tor was probably one of a series of confrontations, including the earlier Siege of Toulouse, that together contributed to a successful defence of France from Arab attacks. Like in North Africa, Muslim success would have bred more success. Instead, the opposite happened. The lack of success in southern France, as well as elsewhere in the frontier regions of the Umayyads, contributed to their decline. A few years after Tor, in AD 750, the Umayyad dynasty collapsed and was replaced by the Abbasids of Baghdad. This led to political turmoil within the Muslim world, including the breaking away of the Iberian Peninsula as a separate caliphate in 756. The wave of Arab Islamic expansion that had begun in the mid-7th century AD was everywhere drawing to a halt, not only in Europe, but also in the Caucasus, Central Asia, India and Africa. The next two centuries became the golden age of Al-Andalus, Its capital, Cordova, eventually overtook Constantinople as the largest and most prosperous city in Europe and became one of the leading cultural centres of the Islamic world and the work of its philosophers and scientists had a major influence on the intellectual life of medieval Europe. The area of France, on the other hand, was united under a strong king for only few and fleeting periods. In fact, it was by chance that the Arab attacks came during one such period, when the Franks had the fortune of, in Charles Martel, an exceptionally strong and successful leader. It can never be known how far Islam would have spread into Europe if Charles had lost. Another debate on the significance of the Battle of Tours is how important it was in helping Charles Martel and their successors, including Charlemagne, from taking control of southern France. Until his defeat by Al-Ghafiqi, Odo rivalled Charles Martel as the strongest effective ruler in France, but his duchy was weakened by successive Muslim invasions, which Charles and his successors took advantage of. On the other hand, though, Aquitaine did remain quite rich and independent for centuries afterwards. 
Join me for the next podcast when I turn attention to the foundation of England by the Anglo-Saxons, and in particular the Battle of Brunnenburg in 937, when the English faced the combined armies of the Norse Gael, King of Dublin, the King of the Scots, and the King of Strathclyde. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.